Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I have always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. Welcome to another edition of Clyburn Chronicles. This month, we're going to discuss an issue that is plaguing our communities, gun violence. And we're going to be talking with one of my colleagues and a very good friend, Congresswoman Lucy McBath. Lucy, welcome. Thank you so much, Whip Clyburn. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you today. Thank you for coming. I, like all of you, am deeply disturbed by last month's racially motivated shooting in Buffalo, New York. That shooting resulted in the murder of 10 people in a grocery store and a heartbreaking massacre at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, in which 19 children and two teachers were killed. Earlier this month, I participated in a prayer service that commemorated the seventh anniversary of the Mother Emanuel slaughter of nine black parishioners in my congressional district down in Charleston, South Carolina. Just last year, eight people were slain in an Asian-owned salon in your home state of Georgia. And you have a personal connection with this tragedy. Far too many communities have been shattered and families heartbroken by this epidemic of gun violence. In Congress, we see some movement taking place due in large measure to your work. And I'm so pleased that you're here with us today to share uh, with us, not just your long work in this very important field, but also your most recent efforts uh, that have been taken into account by the House of Representatives and the Senate. And I want you to share with us uh, a little bit about uh, what you have recently done, this what we call red flag legislation, how you got to that, and a little bit about yourself and how you got 
to this whole effort in the first place. Let's just listen to you. Well, thank you, Jim. And um, I, I come to doing gun safety work and gun violence prevention um, simply due to my own tragedy. Um, I lost my son Jordan in what people have deemed as the loud music killing. I lost my son Jordan in a racially motivated killing in November uh, 2012 in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, my son was simply playing loud music in his car and uh, he and his friends the day after Thanksgiving um, were going shopping, going from one mall to the next and within three and a half minutes uh, parking at a convenience store gas station, my uh, son was murdered um, and thank God he was only one. Um, not thank God that he was only one, but you know, the other three boys that were in the car with him were unarmed and un were not hurt. And my son and his friends were shot at simply for playing loud music in their car. Man uh, didn't like the loud music they were playing, called them gangbangers and thugs. It was a raci racially motivated killing. He shot 10 rounds into the car and simply drove away, killing my son um, by three bullets that um, ballistics say he directed towards my son. We went through two and a half years of trial, uh, trying to get convictions for the murder of my son, first degree murder of my son, and the attempted murders on the other three boys in the car with him. Um, by the grace of God, uh, the man that murdered my son is sitting in prison for life now with no parole for the first degree murder of my son and the attempted murders on the other three boys. So that is how I have come to this work. I became a gun safety um, advocate uh, for every town for gun safety and moms demand action for gun sense in America. I had actually come to Washington to lobby the very colleagues uh, that I now work with asking uh, that uh, you would be so willing to listen to a mother's heart, listen to the cries of a mother who had lost her child to unnecessary gun violence and to do something and to change the policies by which people continue to die all around this country unneedlessly to unnecessary gun violence. So um, it was after the Parkland tragedy that I was really, really very upset because those children that were murdered there in, in Parkland, Florida were the same age as my son at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And I determined that something had to be done. And I felt who better to run for office to try to change the gun safety crisis that we have in this country other than a mother me, a survivor who'd lost her own child to gun violence. So I ran for Congress, I won, I put my faith first and I became a mom on a mission to end gun violence in America because I don't believe that any parent, any individual should ever have to receive that kind of phone call that I received, uh, the phone call that every parent fears that they will lose their loved one in unnecessary gun violence. Um, and so, we are doing this work in Congress now. We are discussing these very kinds of laws as you, uh, as the country has known to be the gun safety package that we have just passed in the House. The Senate has just now considered and created language on um, because we've got to put our shoes in the parents and we've got to put ourselves in the shoes of these parents, parents like me that are losing their loved ones uh, in the shoes of those that we have been uh, most affected by. We've been most affected by these kinds of tragedies. 
Uh, and so these are the kind of tragedies that people all across the country are dreading. And so I know that myself, I'll be in this fight for the rest of my life, wherever this fight takes me. I know that my son Jordan will follow with me. But earlier this week, um, we did have a bipartisan you know, group of senators who unveiled an agreement on gun, gun safety legislation. And I'm pleased that Republicans have come to the table with Democrats in the Senate to acknowledge that we are not powerless against the uniquely American epidemic of gun violence and that there are ways in which legislation can help put a stop to the senseless gun violence that we see day in and day out in our country. Some of the proposals that um, we have just received language on um, included you know, measures that you and I have both worked on in the House. Proposals to incentivize states to establish extremist protection orders um, that gets guns out of the hands of those who pose a danger to themselves or to others. Uh, also a measure to combat straw purchases, to keep firearms out of the hands of those who cannot legally purchase those firearms themselves. Um, so I believe you know, that some of these measures are just first steps, they're important steps uh, in combating this extremist gun culture that we're living in. This is a public health crisis. And if we can get this across the goal line, it will represent the first time that the United States of Cong you know, here in Congress has taken meaningful action on gun violence prevention in what, almost 30 years. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for, so much for that. And, and I want to dwell on that a little bit because you mentioned uh, two things. And uh, one of, you know, uh, our, uh, the public sometimes will not uh, uh, get connected to the official name uh, of these bills. So uh, the two uh, issues that you talked about carry with them an acronym. Uh, your legislation is called Red Flag. Uh, mine is called uh, Closing the Charleston Loophole. Uh, now, neither one of us will get all that we want on either one of these issues. But as you said, we're taking the first step. And that's very, very important. Uh, I often have to mention on this uh, program uh, the little bit of history of first steps. When you start talking about the Civil Rights Act, people uh, look at the Civil Rights Act as if it was one uh, big bill passed on one day. We got the uh, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act uh, of uh, 1964, 1964. We didn't get voting until 65. We didn't get housing until 68. But we started with 64. We're starting now with this legislation that we hope will get across uh, the goal line. Explain to our listeners exactly what your bill does, that red flag bill. Absolutely. Red flags basically means exactly what it is. It um, is a piece of legislation that um, it's, I guess, if you will, it kind of um, resembles a domestic violence order. And basically what the legislation does is that it allows loved ones, family members with law enforcement to be able to go to court, go to a judge and say, 
my loved one, my family member is exhibiting signs of being in crisis. And my loved one, this individual, this family member actually has access to guns, owns guns, has access to guns and ammunition. And what the red flag bill law basically does is it gives the ability for families and law enforcement to be able to help take the guns out of hands that out of the hands of those people that either pose a threat to themselves or to others by for a certain period of time taking guns out of their possession until it's deemed that they're no longer a threat to themselves or a threat to others. That's really in essence, it's basically like a domestic violence um, order. It's basically the same thing for guns. And that's about as simple as I can basically say what it is. And it's called red flag simply because when people are in crisis and they, you know, oftentimes if they're about ready to commit suicide or mass tragedy, there are red flags. There are signs that they are in crisis. And so if we can identify those individuals early enough, give families and law, law enforcement, because oftentimes families who recognize these red flags go to law enforcement and say, I fear for my loved one. I fear that they're going to commit suicide or do something worse. Law enforcement has said our hands are tied. There's nothing that we can do until actual you know, criminal behavior has happened. So this gives people the ability to be able to help uh, protect themselves, protect their loved ones, and protect their community. Uh, it that's really, right. go ahead. And that's what, uh, uh, no, as you said, we have not gotten legislative language on this bill yet, uh, but we've seen what the framework is all about. Uh, we have not seen all the legislative language. I understand it was voted on uh, in the Senate and uh, the Senate is going to pass something. So we'll know what it is uh, when we get it. But like you say, uh, we've taken a step here. And I would say this to our listeners, you know, you got red flag laws for a lot of other things. If you are going to a bank and you make a deposit uh, of $10,500 in the bank, that's a red flag. Uh, and banks can inform law enforcement uh, that that deposit was made because the law says in the deposit of $10,000 raises a red flag and they want to know whether or not uh, that's your money or is, uh, it was gained, uh, is ill-gotten gain. Uh, so uh, that's all this, like you said, that's what this is all about. When you see these red flags, inform law enforcement uh, that this is a red flag uh, that you might want to take a look at. Now, go ahead. I was going to say, for example, you know, every time I discuss these red flag laws, I think of the story of a woman named Mary Miller Strobel. And um, Mary's brother, Ben, was a combat veteran who suffered from depression and PTSD. And Mary and her father, they drove around town and they visited every gun store in the area, pleading with each and every one of them not to sell Ben a gun. They were worried that in a moment of desperation that he might take his own life. So, you know, Ben Miller actually died by suicide with a gun. He bought the gun at a local gun store. So we see time and time again that somehow, you know, the people knew 
that a shooter was dangerous. And some someone knew that the shooter had weapons, someone knew that the shooter was filled with either violent thoughts or even that a person was thinking of taking his own life. So if we can identify those individuals early on and give law enforcement the ability and the tools also to you know, go to court with the families, then we might be able to deter some of these tragedies. Well, that's quite true. And uh, this will be the first step. We'll have to wait and see exactly what the bill is. We're uh, recording this show here uh, before we uh, get to a final uh, passage on anything in the House or the Senate. We hope uh, to get that done uh, within the next several days. Uh, but whatever it is, it will not go as far as you want it to go. It will not go as far as I want it to go. But it will get us started uh, on uh, the way. And uh, as Senator Murphy uh, said this morning, there's no question but, but that this bill will save lives. And we can deal on it uh, going forward. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about um, exactly uh, who and what you were before you became a congresswoman, uh, before you became a mom on a mission. In fact, that's when I first met you, uh, when you were uh, a mom on a mission. Uh, it just so happened that you and I were both on the same mission. I was not a mom, uh, but um, we were on the same mission. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you. Um, I, you know, for one, never uh, imagined that I would be in Congress. Um, I used to be a flight attendant for 30 years and um, a mom. And uh, in that role, you know, raising my son Jordan was the most important job I, I thought that I had. I took it very, very seriously. I became a single mom very shortly after he, um, at, the, at the age of three, after he was born. And so I would actually fly on the weekends so that I could be home during the week to raise my son to make sure there was one full-time parent there. And I thought that I was really just going to go ahead and retire uh, from Delta Airlines as a flight attendant. And then when I lost Jordan, I became the national spokesperson and faith and outreach leader for every town for gun safety and moms demand action for gun sense in America. I started really speaking out about our tragedy and had come to realize how extremist uh, our gun culture was in the country, which I didn't even know beforehand. Learned more about the numbers of people that continue to die. Over 110 people in this country die every single day unnecessarily to unnecessary gun violence. And so I became an advocate as a survivor um, to gun violence. I became an advocate speaking out uh, to our state legislators, testifying before the United States Senate, uh, coming to speak with uh, you and others that are now my colleagues about uh, really how important it is that we save as many lives as we can. And with that comes with policy changes for the nature of the way that we use guns, purchase guns, uh, <laughs> you know, keeping guns out of the hands of people who should not have access to them, such as domestic abusers or people that are in emotional crisis or people that have criminal backgrounds. And um, 
I decided to run for Congress, as I said, after the Parkland tragedy, because I was on a mission to make sure that no other family would ever, ever, ever have to feel the kind of pain and suffer the kind of pain that my family has. And I wanted to save as many lives and save as many lives of our children as possible. You know, I'm glad you uh, brought that up because uh, I want our listeners to know uh, that uh, Congress is made up of people from all walks of life. Uh, there's nothing unique about a congressperson. Uh, some are doctors, some are lawyers, some are plumbers, and uh, have all kinds of backgrounds. And we come here with these various different backgrounds from all over the country. We all get in one room and try to reconcile whatever those backgrounds and experiences are to try to find common ground on passing laws. Uh, and uh, your background is a flight attendant. Uh, now, I can imagine uh, having flown uh, often and having uh, witnessed what flight attendants sometimes go through uh, with unruly passengers and etc. That'll teach you a lot about dealing with unruly Congress people. So I want our listeners to know uh, that no matter what walk of life you're in, uh, you can, uh, if circumstances present itself, uh, be a member of Congress uh, or the member of the United States. Uh, well, you know, uh, a lot of people don't realize that the Senate is the Congress. It's the House and the Senate to make up the Congress. But you can be, uh, get involved locally, school boards, city councils, county councils, whatever it might be, and bring that background that you've got, that experience that you've got, and bring it into that room uh, and help us make this country a better place. I want you to share with us just a little bit. You know, you have in Georgia. And let me say this. When you first announced for Congress, nobody gave you a chance to win. I know you thought you could win. And there might have been one or two other people who did outside of your family. But you ran against all odds. Uh, you ran against a popular person that it, uh, the public was used to seeing all the time. Uh, very few people knew much about you, but you got into that race uh, uh, with full confidence. And I'll never forget when I first met you on the campaign trail. I told a cousin of mine was with me, and when that evening was over, I turned to him and I said, she's going to win this race. Uh, and because I saw the way that you connected uh, with the people in that room. Uh, and there's something else about you uh, that I would like for you to share. Now, we either talk about guns, but you are a two-time cancer survivor. Share that with you, because that also is an experience you brought uh, to the campaign trail. Absolutely. I um, was diagnosed with breast cancer 
two times and I am a two-time survivor, I'm glad to say. Uh, and that really has really helped to um, broaden my perspective about healthcare. I was diagnosed twice, uh, had really good, had access to excellent healthcare um, and was able to get that healthcare through, through Delta Airlines. And I never really had to worry about how I was gonna pay my bills um, because I knew I, you know, I had some means to be able to do so. But it did broaden my perspective as to the fact that there may be a lot of people in America who, especially women that are diagnosed with breast cancer that may not have the benefit of having access to the care, the treatment that I did. And that I firmly believe that everyone in the United States of America should have access to good quality, affordable health care and also treatment for that health care. And so actually having been a survivor, still a survivor of breast cancer, I understand the trauma that that brings as well. The trauma of one, you know, can I afford the treatment? What is the treatment? Am I going to live? What about my family? You know, all those things that you're having to deal with. And so that has broadened my perspective as to how important it is to make sure that everyone has access to affordable health care, quality health care, and bringing down the cost of, uh, you know, those, those treatments, the cost of their medications and pharmaceuticals so that they can live a good quality of life. And so that is another experience that I've had in my life that really um, helps me to understand and really empathize with people like me that have pre-existing conditions. Because I want to make sure here in Washington that I'm always helping to encapsulate policy that helps people that have pre-existing conditions. Because oftentimes that's no fault of their own, but they should still have access to the same good quality healthcare so that they can live a long and fruitful life. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I you know, um, I suspect uh, if you listen to this program, uh, if you listened to it before, you probably have heard me say this. When I wrote my uh, memoirs, um, uh, published back in what, 2014, I called it Blessed Experiences. And, and I called it that because of an experience I had when I was a sophomore in college. And the professor said to me on one occasion, Son, you will never be in a more, nor will you be in a less than what your experiences allow you to be. And those experiences, uh, I said, have not always been pleasant, but they've always been blessings. And as you just said, uh, going through um, the death of a child uh, is very, very unpleasant but you turn that into a blessing to not just yourself and your family, but all of us, because it's really a blessing to me to serve with you here in the Congress. And going through uh, breast cancer, uh, very unpleasant experience, but you've been blessed uh, in such a way that you can bring to that experience the fight for universal healthcare which you and I are still fighting for. Uh, it's coming in incremental steps. The Affordable Care Act is with us. 
We're going to try to improve it this year, and we'll probably work on it again next year. Uh, but you have brought to Congress, brought to uh, this battle for making this country's greatness accessible and affordable for all of its, uh, its citizens. Healthcare must be accessible and affordable. Housing, accessible and affordable. Education, energy, whatever it is, we got to make it accessible and affordable. And you have been one great warrior for that. Now, what do you think uh, should be the future in both these fields? Uh, what would you say uh, we should keep working on uh, going forward? And uh, you know, this is a pursuit. I mean, whatever happens with this bill now is like the Affordable Care Act. We got started with it back in what 2010, uh, and we are are going to continue for as long as it takes to get it universal. Uh, I'm sure you feel the same way about the gun laws. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as we all know, you know, change doesn't happen overnight, you know, and what I do understand and know is that real effective change comes from those who are doing the hard work on the ground, as well as those of us that are doing hard work here in Washington and our state legislatures all around the country. This work definitely is not easy and the legislation that we craft and put forth these policies really will help to save lives. But that's only possible if we continue to stay dedicated and we continue to advocate and we continue to do the really hard work. And as you said, you know, there's so much more that we'll still be able to accomplish going forward, but the changes that we need to make um, are incremental changes. This is a long haul fight to make sure that every person in this country can live freely in their own communities without the fear of unnecessary gun violence. I know that the change does not just come from the top down, but also the bottom up. And I know that many of your listeners are the advocates who are putting in the effort on the ground to change this culture. And it's because of their strength and unwavering determination that you know we've been able to do our work and we'll continue to be able to do our work. All of the grassroots movement uh, organizers and volunteers on the ground that are really working so hard. This is a movement and this really is a movement just like the civil rights movement. This too is a movement. Uh, it's helping bring gun violence prevention to the forefront as a national conversation, as a national conversation, a consistent conversation and not a conversation just in just each and every time we have a tragedy that this is a, an extremist gun culture we're living in, that people are suffering by every single day in every community across America. And telling their stories, because the stories is the activism that helps inspire our friends and our communities and legislators, people like you and me, to do the work, to protect our loved ones in our communities. And just by tuning in today or talking about what these issues mean, to you and to me and to our families, you know, we are demonstrating, you know, that it does take courage. We are demonstrating that it does take strength and it does take hard work. Uh, we are demonstrating that, you know, our voices are loud enough to create the change. And the change comes, you know, from us, from the policy, 
but also the change comes from those that are on the ground actually advocating. And this is incredible progress that we have seen, incredible progress that I have seen since 2012, since I lost my son, just in this last few years. And these are crucial efforts that are really making a difference. Well, thank you so much for that. That it takes a lot of, it, there's something else that change takes, uh, especially uh, those of us uh, with the backgrounds and experiences that you and I have. And it's found uh, in faith. Uh, and I often uh, tell people that I am guided uh, by that experience growing up in the Postnets. And I often think about what I call the faith chapter of the Bible, which I think is articulated uh, in the, um, the book of Hebrew, the very, the 11th chapter of Hebrew, the very first verse, faith, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And so I wanna say to my listeners here today that you, Lucy McBath, has demonstrated what that little verse is all about. The evidence of things hoped for. You know, that is what faith is all about. We hope, and you don't see it all the time, uh, but it's there, and you have to keep it. And so I want to thank you uh, for the service uh, that you're giving to this great country is one that I'm proud to be a part of. And I'm gonna give you the last word today. Well, thank you so much. And yes, Hebrews 11.1, 1, that, is, <laughs> that is my scripture. That is my scripture in the, in, the, in the Bible that I try to live by every day. And so I try to, to do this work, the work for God's people in a way that even though we may not see with our natural eyes, the changes, that we're fighting the, the spiritual battle. This is really what we're fighting. We're fighting the spiritual battle, but I know that in the end, God's people win. So that is the way I try to do my work. I look towards that, the spiritual goals and know that everything that we do, no matter how long it takes us, we're going to win in the end because we are fighting to care for God's people. And that's the way I see my work. That's the way I try to live uh, my daily life and the work that I do, caring for God's people. Well, thank you so much for that. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to uh, Clyburn's Chronicles featuring Congresswoman Lucy McBath uh, from the great state of Georgia. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.